0: Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast
1: that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders, brought to you by SATC Solutions L3C.
0: You can connect with us on Instagram or Twitter, where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. For more information, including our email, visit us online at satcsolutions.com. Be sure to rate and subscribe to Bridging Chicago on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to
1: this podcast. Bridging Chicago. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. I'm Nathan, your host. I'm also the uh, I'm also a legal assistant here at SATC Law. And so, it's been a great joy for me to bring you these episodes this year that are featuring Uh, guests that are, we were celebrating Black History Month, we were also celebrating Women's History Month, and so we hope that you've enjoyed those episodes so far, and as we invite more and more people onto the podcast and hear more and more stories, we're just grateful for you, our listeners, to be joining us, and obviously for our guests, we're so grateful that they are sharing their stories, and today we have another one of those stories for you. I'm joined by Danielle Vaughn, who is a managing consultant at Point B, and Danielle, I'm I'm really excited for you to be here and to share with our listeners. I think they'll get a lot from you and you'll inspire them a lot. So thank you for joining us here today.
0: It's my pleasure, Nathan.
1: We were talking a little bit before the podcast began and and one of the things that I really get from you is your desire to build good relationships and to share not just um, your, your journey as far as what you're doing for work and sort of what you've learned in your business life, but also what you've learned in life in general and uh, and probably in your relationships and in, and in work too, but um, but obviously building relationships is important. So I kind of want to start there just so we can get this framework of why it's important to you or why that is so important to you that relationships kind of cover all
0: Hmm. Yeah, I go hard for my relationships. Um, I really do. And um I don't know if I can pinpoint the origin of that. I think I just am somebody that um I love really hard. I don't know if it's my um I'm a cancer. <laughs> we tend to be highly emotive people. Um I'm incredibly sensitive. I'm very sensitive to the emotions of others. And I'm just naturally interested in people. People's stories is uh, that's something that I could learn about people's stories all day long. And I'm really a curious person. So I think that's, those are the things that make me want to uh, invest into a relationship with someone. And then I just, I get a lot out of pouring into relationships. So I don't really know. I don't know. I don't know which, what more to say beyond that, but I do go hard for my relationships, especially my, my friendships.
1: No, that's, that's excellent. And, um, so kind of coming off of that, I think it's, it's great to hear that. It's something that, um, when you were talking about being a very sensitive person, sometimes in business, and I think especially being a female, it can be sort of a challenge to say I'm a very sensitive person because sensitivity or emoting isn't really always considered really good in business or in the corporate world. But um, obviously, that's something that is just kind of a part of who you are. And so can you share about how people have sort of interacted with that? Has it been has it been good or has there been challenges kind of interacting with people, having that sort of more sensitive or emotional uh, sort of attachment to it?
0: Um, so yeah, because I work in management consulting, I think our clients are certainly, they're investing with point B because they want the expertise that our consultants are bringing to the table. But the other thing that they're, I think one of our secret sauce is empathy. And I think it's relevant for any type of, um, management consultant to bring empathy to the work that they do. But in my case, the work I do is really around, the people side of business. And so empathy is at the core of the services I'm delivering. So some of the work that I do is diversity, equity, and inclusion work. I've been helping clients a lot out with developing and implementing their DEI strategies. And so you have to have empathy in doing that work. Um, the other thing that I, th- I think is really relevant from an empathy perspective is that the clients that I have, they are all people too. So, they're having not just business challenges, but they're also having personal challenges as leaders. They're having challenges in their relationships um, as leaders. And so, if you can be someone that is able to build trust with them and connect with them on a human level, I think it allows them to open up to you, to feel like they can trust you. You can grow a relationship that can be much more than just, I'm here to transform your business and I'm here to develop certain deliverables, I'm here to help you um, be an even better leader than you are today.
1: And do you feel like those kind of client interactions, is that a norm in your field or is that something you feel like point B is really being one of the early adoptees of that and really focusing on that when maybe others aren't focusing as much on it yet?
0: It's something that we've made a big priority at point B. And I've only worked at two, I've only worked at two firms, but the first firm I worked at was, uh, Big X Consulting. So it was a, a big household name. And, um, in the, in the time that I was there, it was never something that was brought up or emphasized. It was just about, it was just about the work. It was about, um, whatever work we were there to deliver according to a statement of work. And this is the first time I've ever worked for a firm where we've said we're here to build relationships and to connect with people and to um, to use empathy as as a jumping off point for that and to really see our, our clients as, as human beings and to allow them to see that we too are human beings.
1: Yeah. Before we get too deep into what, uh, what you're doing or what point B is, I do want to give people a little more introduction to to you and to sort of where you grew up and, and what you uh, took with you from your, your growing up and your, your youth and your parents to what you're doing now. And so um, let's take a step back and talk about uh, when you were growing up. So um, are you from the Chicago area or are you from somewhere else and then came here?
0: I am from Richmond, Virginia, or really a suburb of Richmond, Virginia, and lived there, you know, my whole life until I was 18. Headed to Pittsburgh, University of Pittsburgh for undergraduate, and back to Richmond, Virginia for a few years, and then I've been in Chicago for the last, oh wow, it's been I think 13 years.
1: Yeah, Uh, I I love the South. I love going there. It's always really i mean it's obviously full of history and it has without well, you know it just has that history of good and not so good uh cultural history sure. in the u.s and um i was in south carolina once and i was walking through this open air market that they had that i thought was really neat and i was like oh this is really cool that they have this and then you get out of it and you're like oh there's a confederate museum there <laughs> i was like oh right. wow this is kind of the story of the South where it's like this open air market. There's a lot of people, a lot of different people. And then it's like, you know, this reminder. And so um, I'm wondering if you can share with me about your experience growing up in the South and sort of what that dynamic was like. If you were in a diverse neighborhood, if if you kind of had, I mean, we all, people of color have to deal with that all the time, regardless, but what that was like for you growing up.
0: Yeah, we um I think my family I would characterize us as middle class. Um we lived in a suburban community and it was very white. Um and the memories that I have are mostly of of being school age. So from the time of kindergarten on up to um uh, my last year in high school and I very much remember being one usually the only a uh, black kid in my, my classes. Um, and in some cases, maybe there were two. Um, so it wasn't the most racially diverse. And even um, if I think about um, economics and incomes, there, it wasn't even a tremendous amount of income diversity. Um, and, you know, there were maybe some other types of diversity, but, um, I felt like my environment growing up was a little bit more homogeneous and I felt like I sat very much outside of that. So I don't have the best memories of of feeling like I fit in and I think that's a lot of people's stories, but um it wasn't until I got to college that I felt like I saw people that looked like me and that I found people that had the same interest um that looked like me so that was kind of a that was a big awakening point for me. But growing up, I think, was was really tough. Um, as an example, I think one of the things that was really tough for me I mean, once I hit puberty and that was the age where, um, you know, people started to become interested in, in other boys and girls and having, um, you know, early stage romantic partners. People had boyfriends and girlfriends at school Um in the white school that I was at, the majority white school, no one really ever even looked at me in that way that I know of. And so I grew up really thinking that it must be because I was ugly and I was really undesirable. And so for me, it wasn't until college that I found out that, um, you know, there were people that did find me attractive and, and, you know, might be interested in a romantic relationship with me. And I, and I realize now that it was just because I think in the community that I grew up in, there wasn't really an appreciation for, I mean, I was a child, right. But for black women, um, that wasn't really considered something that was beautiful or attractive. And it didn't dawn on me until later that that's what was going on. And it wasn't, it wasn't um, specifically an ugly duckling story. It was just, I guess what people were socialized to find beautiful.
1: Yeah. And we've, talked with previous guests about this, about why it's so important for, for BIPOC people to be included in all of these rooms and to, you know, even just to be able to see someone like you on TV or, you know, in, in the business room or in, in any room that's out there, why it's so important. And I think that really speaks to that because, um, you know, I felt a lot the same way where it's like, when you don't see people like you around you, you start, there's this stark realization that you're different. And, uh, as an example for me, like I, I came here from Mexico and I grew up, um, with my adoptive family who I, I love. They're, they're my family, no question about it. It's, I don't even think about them any other way, but, um, it, it's, my two white parents and my three white siblings, who are their natural-born children, and me. So people ask me sometimes, "Oh, did, like when did you know you were adopted?" And I was like, "Well, day one, because I looked right. very different. I sounded very different. Like there was never a question of that. And so um, there were times where I look around and I'm like, "Man, I am not like these people. What is wrong with me?" And and I think that's the big reason of why you know one of the big reasons why it's so important to have diversity in, in all these different areas, but one of the things that I really appreciate that we're focusing a lot more on more recently is an in inclusion. Um, and so I'm wondering if you, can, if you can share with us sort of what you see as the difference between diversity and inclusion and why you think that it can't just stop at diversity, but we have to talk about inclusion as well
0: equity. I mean, that's the other piece. Um, And then some people would even add belonging. I I won't overcomplicate it. But for me, uh, diversity is largely about representation. And so if I think about it in the context of an organization, diversity is really being able to look around and see, you know, what what types of people do we have here and, you know, how 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 much do we look like the outside world, which is very diverse um, in terms of racial uh, racial diversity, people with different disabilities, um, uh, gender identity, um, um, you know, sexual orientation, all these different things, right? When I think about inclusion, um, I think about the concept of if you open up your, the doors to your organization or to the environment and and then you start to see representative diversity, that doesn't mean that it is a welcoming environment, though, to the people that are um, not a majority. And so inclusion for me is very much about what kind of environment have we created for people to feel welcome, to feel like they can be themselves and that them, that who they are is Welcomed and respected, um, but even then that's still not enough because that those two things alone don't you know address some of the the um systemic barriers that people face, some of the inequality that exists, so to me, like the last you know frontier, I shouldn't say the last but another another thing to really conquer for organizations is to really think about. The practices and the processes that we want in our history and our lore and and our culture and think about how do we work on that to make sure that we have equity in the way that we do things so that people are having um, opportunities and able to get promoted and um, do other things um, without any kind of restrictions or barriers that are um, in their way
1: yeah that reminds me of uh... An article that I saw on LinkedIn that was talking about dress codes and how dress codes have been traditionally um, non inclusive. And uh, it's really making headlines because as more and more uh, minority people get elected in the legislature, you know, the legislature has had a very strict dress code for all time. And, you know, what does that mean for people of color who are? Being elected officials now, are they like? Do they have to go out and buy all these suits and look like these old white men that have been doing this for a long time? And, and if they are not, does that mean that they're somehow a, a, a not as good a senator, not as good a representative, not as good a uh, you know that they don't belong there? And I think that's a really good conversation that they're having, and I hope that a lot of positive stuff comes out of that because it I get really inspired that in this last year especially um despite the obvious pandemic that's going on but that people are really starting to do a lot of the nitty-gritty work i think and so you know as challenging as it is and as challenging as it has been and probably will always be for me like i'm really inspired by the hope that i'm seeing through these kinds of things uh, at least discussions that are happening
0: it's I think starting to I shouldn't shouldn't say starting to change it is getting better but there's still there's still a lot of issues with that I mean I think about the um, policing around hair and hairstyles particularly for um, black and brown people and um, we're seeing that be an issue not just in in the business world and in corporate America but schools as well and policies around um, school systems and what what hairstyles are considered acceptable, and what schools are—I mean, what hairstyles are considered to um, be in compliance with school policy and what's not—and so there's still um, quite a bit of quite a bit of work to be to be done. Not just yeah. not just in terms of what's allowed or what is considered um, to not be rule breaking, but also what's culturally acceptable. So it's one thing to um, you know, have, uh, it's one thing to have an environment where dressing in your dressing in a way that is authentic to you is not against the rules, but it's another thing though, for you to, to dress and look the way that you want to look. And then it not be considered that you are breaking some sort of cultural norm and for people to feel like, well, that's not what leaders look like, or that's not what whatever look like, and for you to be truly accepted.
1: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really great thought. I hadn't heard that before, and so thanks for sharing that. Um, I see that uh, you you talked about going to Pitt, um, to University of Pittsburgh. I see that you studied business at Pittsburgh, and it's kind of in line with what you're doing now. We see. Some guests who come on and they're like, yeah, I studied art and now I'm an art director or they'll be like, yeah, I studied biology and now I teach dance or something. So we've seen all from all different perspectives. But um, did you know going into Pitt that you wanted to study business?
0: I did. I didn't always know that I wanted to study business, though. If you'd asked me when I was younger, I might have told you a variety of other things that I wanted to do. I certainly wanted to be a soap opera actress. And then um, when the show In Living Color was on, I really wanted to be on In Living Color and do not stand up, but I wanted to do uh, comedy. And, you know, I I thought uh, that would be a great future for me. But I became a little bit scared about how successful I'd be and if I'd really be, uh, if I had the talent to be able to support myself doing either of those things. So I started thinking about careers that felt um, like they might be safer um, and thought about what what could I do that I'm pretty sure that I could at least support myself uh, doing this. And so pursuing a career in business was, was an easy choice, but it was even easier to pick where I wanted to focus in business because the thing that I was really attracted to, to was people. We talked about relationships earlier in our conversation and I wanted to be relational in the business world and think about what's, what is the business of people really? And so I started doing some recruiting and then got into some HR work. And, um, now I'm doing work that is, is related to organizational effectiveness. And we can get into that if it's interesting, but, Mm -hmm. um, it for me it was it was it was a pretty easy choice to make once I thought about what what can I do and realistically be able to support myself and and still find it interesting.
1: Yeah, um, I also want to talk a little bit about you going on to get your master's because going to another area to get that and so after after getting your bachelor's did you go and get your master's right away then?
0: I took, I think a year to um, just maybe two to be in the workforce. And then I was contemplating what kind of, career, you know, what kind of, I, I knew for sure I wanted to pursue some sort of higher education degree because I thought it would um, allow me to have more career possibilities that might be financially beneficial, more credibility. And Quite frankly, I love being in the classroom. I mean, if I if I could do that for a living and just be a student for life and have someone else pay for it, that would have been my first choice. <laughs> <laughs> uh so I knew I wanted to pursue something. So I looked at I looked at some different options. For a while, I thought about um a law degree actually. I thought about being an employment lawyer. I was working in human resources at the time. I was really interested in employee relations. I thought about uh, becoming an arbitrator, and so thought maybe law school's a possibility. And then the further I got into my career and doing that work, I realized that I don't, I don't think I was serious enough about it to pursue it. So, uh, in the meantime, I had heard about another program at George Washington University, where George Washington University professors were um, driving in and teaching classes in Richmond, Virginia, and you could get your your master's degree in human resources development, which is very much about adult learning. And that was really, that was really related to work that I had started to do and wanted to do more of. So I was able to, to work full time during the day, go to classes at night and finish in, finish in a couple of years with, with my degree.
1: I, I would think with, Kind of doing all that stuff, it comes with a lot of challenges because it doesn't seem like it would be very easy to do. I mean, even if you love school, there's got to be a lot of challenges around doing that. Uh, I'm wondering if you can share with me sort of how you, not just at that time, but in your life in general, sort of how you deal with challenges. How how do you look at them, and then how do you like plan, make a plan to to get through them.
0: Mm. By the skin of my teeth <laughs> <laughs> no, um really i I think uh I'd love to tell you that I always have this grand plan and I have this um you know this these mantras that I rely on to get me through really difficult times because I'm just so evolved as a person that way, but I, 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 honestly, it's a lot of by any means necessary is how mm. I get it done at that period of time the 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 biggest challenge was making time not just to go to the classes but specifically to do the work um between classes and that was what i had a hard time with but honestly i did a lot of work during during uh during work during work hours during business hours i would be working on my school assignments and so it was by any means necessary and today it's a little bit of the same thing i'm mom. I have a young child. My child has a long commute to school and I work really hard at what I do. And so it's, it's just any way that I can fit it in. I just, I just get it in. So, you know, my, my means of dealing with that kind of difficulty, a lot of it is scheduling is getting up early, staying up late and just and just making it happen. But I realize that's not the only difficulty. There's you know, all kinds of other, other struggles you know, that I've, I've had over time, racism on the job and other things that I've dealt with. And um, I think the thing that I do lean on in, in those instances is my faith. My parents have continued to be great support systems, friends, um, just staying rooted and grounded in who I am and what my values are. Um, and what I val you know, what I value in life, um, and who, who I believe in and what I believe that I'm here to do, um, that gives me just enough strength to get through the thing of the day. And then I, you know, get a little rest and then I try, I try again.
1: Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of value in that because I, that gives me hope because sometimes not sometimes, most of the time I just feel like I'm trying to survive and i always feel like people have these really amazing like oh this is what i do and it works so well and i'm like i try it it doesn't work so well but um but i think just yeah managing and and like keeping at it is sort of how i kind of go about it because otherwise you're just feel like most of us are just guessing most of the time anyway and trying to make something work yeah totally totally so We know that people deal with things in all different ways. And so we've talked about dealing with challenges a little bit. Um, One of the other areas that we've seen that can cause a lot of anxiety for people is like starting that first career because or that first job towards your career, because, you know, obviously going to school and figuring out what you want to study is one thing. But like you were talking about before, actually being able to get paid to make a living doing that thing is a completely different thing. So can you walk me through what that process was like for you after graduation to to start your career and how you were feeling and sort of how you approached that that part of it?
0: Absolutely. So for me it started well before graduating from college. It started for me in high school. Um one with thinking about what career do do I want to have? And it was pretty clear to me that I never wanted to be in a position where I had to depend upon other people to survive. So I absolutely knew that I wanted to do something where I could support myself, not because I was really so focused on the money, but I just wanted to make sure that I would, you know, never be in a position where I had to depend upon um, someone else. I just wanted to always have some sort of control um, in the form of financial independence, so that narrowed the field down some. From there, business felt like a safe bet, and then, um, you know, as as it, I was about to say, luck would have it, but it's I don't think it's luck. I think it was divine intervention. I went to this this camp called Metro Board that was about. Um, uh, building young leaders from different backgrounds, and I was high school age at the time, and there was a, somebody that that came there and was recruiting for another program called inroads and I um, ended up applying for this inroads program and Inroads is a program that works with minority students at the time. I think it was only focused on high school seniors, and then you stayed in the program all through college and every summer. They would match you with an internship at a corporate um, sponsor, and you would work the internship. And then inroads outside of your work hours would give you additional training in how to be successful in that kind of environment. So, you know, we had training on etiquette, and we had training on how to interview for a job, and we had training on how to create deliverables. And we had training on um, just how to, be, how to be a professional because if you're going into the program right out of high school, those aren't things that you automatically know. And so the first year I did it, I hadn't even started college yet, but they, they sent me on two interviews. They sent me on an interview with a bank and said that I could go work for this bank and do in their credit card marketing department. (laughs) Um, And then they sent me on an interview with a insurance company. And I totally bombed the insurance company interview. I didn't know anything about insurance. And I think I did a terrible job of answering the questions. And with the bank, it was a lot easier. Um, So I think for me, just trying to figure out what what career I wanted to pursue graduating from college, it was easier for me because I had been interning the entire time and the company that I ended up working for right after college, I had interned with the summer, uh, the summer previously in human resources. So, and I had found that I liked it. So I think for me, I had um, a lot of support to help me just get my footing and so, and I think that's really what the program exists to do. And Inroads is still around today. I um, know so many uh, people that have really benefited from being in the Inroads program. But if I had to just, um, if I didn't have the support of that program, I don't really know where I would be. I think I would find it a lot more challenging to have even just not just figured out what I wanted to do, but I think it would have, even if I knew what I wanted to do, to be able to just get my foot in the door. If I believed in myself and I just needed the opportunity to even find that opportunity without having the work experience to really back it up, I it would have just been a different, it would have been a whole different story.
1: Yeah, I, I chatted with a previous guest about uh how they felt it was important that we start teaching certain life skills to kids at a younger age for example um like you were talking about interviewing skills or even uh how to save how to spend like some more of those life skills that they felt needed to be taught to kids younger um can you speak to that and why you think that might be valuable for I know for you it was valuable to learn some of those things probably earlier than a lot of other people that you knew were learning them or at least practicing them. Um, and so what's what does that mean for you? Like, what would you like to see younger people kind of be taught about how to do some of these things?
0: I, well, it's been so, I mean, I'm a lot older now, so I don't even know if I can... Um come at this from a knowledgeable point of view on what it is like to be to be young and just starting out your career now, but I do have a younger sister, and she just graduated college during the pandemic and just graduated from undergrad during the pandemic and When I think about a high school age version of her or even going through college, I think some of the some of the stress is really about how how do I get started and so I think a lot of it is on what careers are out there. I think a lot of times people end up in careers that um, they maybe would not have chosen for themselves if they had known that there was more out there. And so I think some awareness around all the different types of things that you can be, if it interests you, um, I think would be really helpful. I think just skills on how to go about looking for a job. There are a lot of services that, that are out there and offer that, but I find that most people's experiences with getting connected to those services is often once you lose your first job. <laughs> once you get laid off or you get fired or, or something of that nature, suddenly you find yourself needing those services. But the, the skill set to be able to figure out what am I interested in? What am I good at? How do I find out what types of jobs are available for somebody with this skill set where are those jobs how do i go about applying what are some tips to get myself noticed so that i can even have the opportunity to interview those are things that i think people need and then i think if you're young too it's just what does it mean to show up at work i mean one of the things that it i didn't know right away is that when you're and it should be obvious but i don't know that i was thinking about it at the time but when someone is paying you to do a job you're being paid more than just to do whatever is your job description you're being paid to deliver a certain kind of value and so there's expectations that come with that that are more than just here's what's on my job description it's about you know what is meaningful and helpful and and providing some sort of value to whomever. And, um, you know, how can, how can I show up in a way where I'm respecting myself, but really delivering that value? So I think those are, you know, those are important lessons to learn.
1: We know that communication is important in any relationship or with any job. Um, And you mentioned about communicating value and sort of what the expectation is Um, can you share with us something that maybe you've shared with one of your clients or that you kind of take on as as something you do in your your personal life as far as communication like why is it so important people do talk about it but it often seems to be misunderstood as well and so why is clear communication important? And then how is how can people practice that? You know, outside of figuring out when it's too late, when you say something and the other person didn't hear what you thought they did, and so something doesn't get done or something doesn't get communicated, can you share with us why communication is so important and then maybe ways that people can practice that?
0: So I think... The way that I'll answer that is is thinking about the perspective of leaders because that's really typically who I'm working with as clients and the way that they communicate with their employees. And so I think sometimes with leaders, there is a perception that if I have said something once, then it is understood. You know, if I have given the vision of what we're doing and I have uh, communicated at some kind of staff meeting <laughs> that this is what we're doing, or I've asked everyone to do the following, then everybody's aligned, we're all on board, and I have a right to be disappointed if then people don't um, follow through on that. But the reality is, all communication is not good communication. And so, there is, I think, other ways in which as leaders, Um, we need to, you know, I try to help them think about how do they create, um, how do they connect with their employees in a way so that they're building some trust, they're building some sort of, um, excitement around what is the work that's being done, creating some sort of context around why, why do I have this request or why are we going in this direction so that people can have some understanding of, of, why it even matters and why they should care in the first place. Um, and then just recognizing that people have a lot going on. So well, well-meaning people often, you know, they may forget or, or drop the ball. So the, the ability to continue to come back to the same messaging and continually communicate what you're looking for and what's needed and continue to engage people um, on that topic on a regular basis as opposed to single announcement or some sort of presentation that happened one time and then, you know, nothing else happened after that. I mean, more is, more is required.
1: Kind of building off of that, um, talk about some of the ways that you feel valued as an employee and, um, how you would encourage other people to show value because one of the things that I've heard amongst my friends is, you know, I, f- I work, I work, I work. And then maybe once a year, a couple of times a year, they'll sit me down and say, this is how you're doing. And I'm really surprised one way or the other. Maybe you're surprised in a good way where it's like, oh, they think I'm doing great. I didn't know that. Or they think I'm doing terribly and I thought I was doing great. Um, so, as far as showing value, what does it mean? For you when when people show you value and then why do you think maybe that's important to do for other people whether they're your sort of colleague or whether it's someone that you manage
0: yeah i think about value as really an investment uh in the other person an investment of your time you know for some sort of greater good so for me, if if a company is going to be able to demonstrate that I'm valued as an employer, valued as somebody that contributes something to that organization, there's a lot of different ways that they can show that. But certainly with salary, um, we think about the concept of that sounds like a no brainer, but we still have big gaps in pay equity, you know, where women are paid less than men, you know. Black women, in particular, are some of the lowest on the on the totem pole when it comes to pay equity. Uh, Latinx women are some of the, you know, also lowest paid in relationship to other people. So, certainly, showing that someone is valued and is considered worthwhile is very much about pay. Paying someone appropriately for the job they're doing and paying them in a in a manner that is equitable um, amongst their amongst their peers. I think it's giving people opportunities to grow and develop and be promoted within an organization, um, having some sort of work-life balance that is reasonable. And um, I think the other thing is, and I don't know that people talk about this a lot, but the ability to be able to make mistakes and have it be okay, because there's a trust that you know, you get it right so often that if we just have a few days here and there where we didn't deliver an A plus, we're still valued and considered to have, be contributing a lot. Because to be honest, I mean, we're all we all have challenging days. So some days it's just not perfect. And so I think to be able to know that coming into work every day, if I do really great most days, and then there's a few days it's just a little off, that that's okay. So that's. I mean, that's important to me to, to feel like I'm valued at work, but in order for me to feel like I am delivering value to someone else, um, for me, that is largely about what I put into the work that I'm doing. Um, And what I really try to think about is why does this, why does this even matter? So if the, what I'm delivering for my clients is recommendations, Certainly, I want the recommendations to be smart and thoughtful, but I really try to think beyond that to what's the bigger, like, what's the bigger use of what I'm doing for them and what's the bigger meaning? So I want them to be able to find my recommendations um, or the advice that I'm giving or the work that I'm doing to be um impactful and that after I'm done working with them it's something that they can keep coming back to them and the wisdom has some kind of legs to it. And so I want to put then into the work um whatever it takes in order for for whatever I'm turning in to be to be that for them. So if that means that I have to put in a little extra to it so that it is meaningful and does have some sort of lasting um lasting wisdom for them that they can actually use, it's actually useful, then that might mean I need to put a little bit extra into it. And it's not simply about, did I get it done? Was it on time? And I mean, was it reasonably decent? So I don't know. Those are two things
1: that I think about. Yeah. Um, I want to honor your time. And so we won't keep you too much longer, but I'd like to close getting your thoughts on um, work-life balance, since you mentioned it. Um, and just this idea that it's okay to to want that it's okay to to not have to like give everything for your career, but to also have family life and personal life and, and you know just fun. It's okay to have fun in your life um, while still trying to to go up further in your career. And so if you can just close us out with sharing about work life balance and and sort of why you think that's important and why it's okay for people to, to try and attain that too.
0: Yeah, I think the pandemic has taught me that I had a lot to learn about work-life balance. And in fact, I didn't really have a decent amount of balance before the pandemic. And there's something about the slowing down and the cancellation of a lot of things that I think forced us to see things in a new way. Um, with some raw honesty that we we weren't able to do before, and for me, one of those realizations was that I needed to be um, able honestly to refill my own tank uh, through some time off and through some family time in order to be able to deliver deliver at my best and so I'm actually on vacation now today is my first day of vacation and um I wasn't somebody that took a lot of vacation time before for for a lot of different reasons. And, um, you know, I'm fortunate in that I do have flexibility to have vacation. And I have made it a point that in discussing with my husband what we want our home life to look like that, you know, we want to take time off. And so I'm actually going to try to take a vacation at least quarterly and have periodic breaks as opposed to saving it all up for the end. Because I I need to just stop at, at points and um, refill my own tank, so that's one of the ways that I do the work life balance. Or I'm starting to do the other thing that I've now been doing for probably about a month is, um, and I learned this from Summer Brown, but she she talked about this concept of a nope day. <laughs> And uh, it's a way of self-care where just uh, on a particular day or a particular morning or an afternoon or a weekend or whatever increment of time makes sense for you, you just say, nope, I'm just not going to do it. And you don't do anything that you don't want to do. And if it is not life-giving for you and it doesn't bring you joy or peace, you just don't do it. And so my husband and I have been in the practice of doing nope, uh, nope mornings with each other now for the past month maybe even two months, and it's been great. So Saturday morning is his note day, and I take our son to soccer and and you know, his appointments and we're gone for hours. And that's my husband's time to do whatever he wants. And I have the same thing on Sunday mornings. And I use the time to sleep up, some sleep in. Sometimes I um watch television, I read a book, I I do whatever, I call people, you know, um make, make, uh, calls to friends. It's whatever I want to do. And that time is so refreshing because there's no pressure. And for me, I'm not caretaking, which is what I find myself doing a lot as, you know, as a mom, as a, as a daughter, as a sister, um, as a wife, you know, as a friend, you know, as a consultant, there's a lot of caretaking inherently in my day. And on my nope days, I don't really take care of anybody but me. And so for me, like that is probably one of the biggest um, practices of work-life balance that, that I'm doing right now. And I would encourage anybody to think about what their nope day or their, their nope morning or nope afternoon might look like for them.
1: Yeah. Let's all take a nope day. <laughs> I like That's that. right. I really like that. <laughs> Uh, well, Danielle, I want to thank you so much for for joining us It's been really great talking to you and and getting your thoughts on all these things and I know we didn't talk a ton about point B um but we do want to make sure that people um know where to connect with you if they want to and so we'll make sure to put all of your your social media all your information in the in the post so that people can connect with you if they want to follow up on any of that so Thanks for joining us, Danielle. Thanks for joining us uh, to our listeners. We really appreciate you um, listening and supporting the podcast. And so uh, we look forward to sharing with you again soon. But that is our episode for today. And again, we appreciate you. And we'll see you again soon. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Nathan.
1: Yeah, thank you.